So we have a, a special treat today. One of the wonderful things that, one of, the, one of the, my favorite things about our church is that um, we have a relationship with a seminary and we have interns that are here training, uh, training in their, in the, to, to their pastoral gifts, training to become pastors and teachers in the church. And so we're super blessed by that. Another thing that, I'm, that I really like about our church is that we value the preaching of the word more than we value any particular preacher. In other words, we believe that the Holy Spirit is powerful and active in and of the word. Uh, And so we believe that the word of God is more important than any particular preacher. And so when we have guest preachers, when we have interns come and preach, we don't have them preach on some other passage. We have them preach on where we're at in our expository preaching. Uh, because the word is more important than any particular preacher. And so today we have the great privilege of having our intern, pastoral intern, Matthew Day, bring the word to us. And so I know that you are going to give a wonderful, warm, res-pres welcome to Matthew Day as he comes and brings us the word. Amen. If you would open with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. This is God's word to you and to us. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Join me now in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the precious gift of your word to us. We do not deserve it. We have done so many things against you and against your word, against your revealed will to us. We don't deserve to even talk to you, let alone to come into your presence. But we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life we could not live and die the death we deserved so that we could stand before you and know that you see us not as wicked but as righteous in Christ and that you see us as your sons and daughters. We pray, Father, 
that by the power of your spirit, you would illumine our hearts and minds to be able to understand and take to heart the things in the text this evening. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few weeks ago, a man named Russell Vout was being questioned in a confirmation hearing for the position of deputy director at the White House Budget Office. And in that confirmation hearing, a well-known senator and former presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, brought up a statement that Vout had written in an article a while ago, saying that Muslims do not know God because they have rejected Jesus, and therefore they stand condemned before God. Sanders objected to that statement and asked Russell Vout if he thought that that statement was Islamophobic, and also if he really truly thought that Muslims stood condemned before God. Vout tried to defend himself by appealing to the image of God in all people, which means we should respect all people. We all have the image. But Bernie Sanders interrupted him several times, and in the end, Senator Sanders said this, I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. I vote no. Bernie Sanders is, of course, under fire for the things that he said in that confirmation hearing, but that's not really what I want to focus on. What I want to focus on is on his emotional reaction. And if you watch a video of the confirmation hearing, you could see that he was pretty angry. And he seemed to be angry about something that the church has taught for 2,000 years. Namely, that salvation can be found only in Christ and in no one else. And Sanders' reaction is an example of something that is happening more broadly in Western society. It increasingly considers many Christian beliefs to be hateful. Our passage today is well aware of the fact that the world will hate us and hate our beliefs. In fact, Jesus himself expected that this would happen. And the church throughout its history has been no stranger to such things. And Jesus knew that this would happen because he knew that he is not of this world. And we who believe in him and follow him are also thereby no longer of the world. And so who Jesus is, what he said and what he did, and the fact that we believe in him and follow him, all of these things go against much of what the world believes and does. And frankly, Jesus said a lot of things that we might find offensive. For example, he declared the works of the world and of humanity to be evil. He said that several times in the Gospel of John. Well, that might sound offensive to many people, perhaps even to some of us in this room. He also declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. That excludes other religions as viable paths of salvation. Salvation can be found only in Christ alone. And so, 
in a pluralistic society like ours, with many religions and many belief systems, such a thing would be considered hateful, arrogant, ignorant. The terms go on. And the Greco-Roman world actually would have thought some very similar things about Christians and Christianity. And so Jesus knows this, and he prays the prayer that we read in the text today because he wants the disciples to have confidence in going out into the world and proclaiming the message of Christianity and about Christ. And this same prayer applies to us too. So the thesis that I have for this passage, the big idea, if you will, is this. Because we are no longer of the world, but have been set apart in Jesus Christ, we may go out into the world that hates us to bear witness about Jesus and to serve the world sacrificially. Let me go ahead and say that again. Because we are no longer of the world, but have been set apart in Christ Jesus, we may go out into the world that hates us to bear witness about Jesus and to serve the world sacrificially. Let's go ahead and break this down into three points. First, of the world. Second, set apart in Jesus Christ. And third, in the world. I move on to my first point of the world. Let's go and take a look at verses 11 through 12 again. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. In these verses, Jesus is admitting to his disciples and speaking to the Father that he is about to leave the disciples. He is going to go through his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension. His physical presence is no longer going to be in the world. And so he prays this prayer. He also recognizes that one of his functions while he was still in the world was to protect his disciples. And now in the verses I just read, he doesn't specify what he means by that, but in verse 15, he specifies it. And he's protecting his disciples from the evil one, or in other words, the devil. And more than that, also the evil and the wickedness that following the devil entails. And the devil himself isn't really mentioned all that much in the Gospel of John, but when he is mentioned, it is very significant. So in John chapter 12, for example, the devil is called the ruler of this world. And he is the one who's going to be cast out. And furthermore, in John chapter 13, we see Satan, the devil, entering into Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, in order for Judas to go off and betray Jesus. And Jesus is well aware that the devil is doing this. In fact, he even gives Judas a piece of bread and then tells Judas to go and do what he had planned to do. So the devil plays a very significant part in this story, and Jesus is well aware of what he is doing. 
Also notice a phrase that Jesus uses to describe Judas. In verse 12, he calls him the son of destruction. Now, by the word destruction, we might think in physical terms, you know, something like a wrecking ball going into a big tower, or in social terms, like, oh, dude, you destroyed that guy's argument. (laughs) That's not quite what the term destruction means here. The (laughs) The term destruction throughout the New Testament usually has reference to God's judgment, and particularly his judgment of morally wicked people. And for example, Jesus urged his audience in the Sermon on the Mount to enter through the narrow gate, for the wide gate and easy path is a path that leads to destruction. It's the same term used in Greek as in this passage. And Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7 predicts future judgment of the world by trial of fire and, in addition, the destruction of the ungodly. Jesus calls Judas a son of destruction because Jesus knew that he was not supposed to keep Judas, but rather Judas was supposed to be given fully over to the hands of the devil. And we know Judas' ultimate end according to the other Gospels. Judas does not return to, Ju- to excuse me. Judas does not return to Jesus in repentance. He ends up hanging himself instead. It's a sad end, but it is one that Jesus knew would happen. We should also reflect on the fact that all of these things are said in view of Jesus' request to the Father to protect the disciples. And Jesus makes that request because he knows that they need it. And frankly, we need it too. The scriptures elsewhere make very clear what our natural state is apart from God and apart from his grace. Ephesians chapter 2, for example, describes us as by nature children of wrath, dead in trespasses and sins, following the desires of the flesh, and following the prince of the power of the air, which is a fancy way of saying the devil. And the Gospel of John, and thereby Jesus himself, affirms the very same things. And so Jesus knows that by default we are in darkness, and that even when he as the light shines into the world, people love darkness rather than light because of their wicked deeds. He says that in chapter 3. And Jesus also knows that all who practice sins are slaves to sin. He says that in chapter 8. He tells the Pharisees that they are of their father, the devil, and they do what he desires. And he also tells them that the reason why they do not hear the words of God, which he offers them, is because they are not of God. Naturally, we are not of God either. But we are fallen, sinful beings. And we cannot make ourselves otherwise without an act of supernatural grace. And that's why John, in chapter 3, spoke of the need for us to be born again. 
And that's why John also says that no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. Without these things, we belong to the devil and remain subject to his tyrannical rule. And that's essentially what it means to be of the world. Those who are of the world belong to the devil and do what he desires. And thus they are slaves to sin, are content with spiritual darkness, and by nature hate God and Jesus Christ. We could point to many examples of what this might look like practically, but there are some interesting things about this passage I wanted to point out. Jesus calls the Father, Holy Father, in verse 11. And throughout the passage, he also uses terms like word and truth. So to be of the world essentially is to reject God as a holy being. That is, that God is a perfectly righteous being and that he is set apart from creation as its creator. And to be of the world is also to reject God's word about himself and about us, who we are as part of his creation and what God expects of us. Instead, those who are of the world do what Adam and Eve did. They follow Satan's lie and they establish their own word, their own identity, their own values. Just think of the many ways in which our own culture does this. It does this every day. We envy celebrities for their talents and wealth. We value success and strength. We value limitless sexual expression. And we encounter messages, words, if you will, every day throughout the world declaring these things to be the ultimate good in life. And we see it everywhere. We see it in TV. We see it in music. We see it in movies. We see it in family, friends, neighbors. We see it in the workplace. And so on and so forth. If these are the only things that we are thinking about on a daily basis, are they not, in a sense, our gods? Are they not the things that we are striving for and striving to serve? Or, maybe let's put it another way, are we not in doing those things, making ourselves gods, thinking that we exist only to please ourselves? The truth, however, is that neither we nor material goods are God. There is only one God, and he alone stands above creation as its creator. And yet, the fallen world does everything it can to suppress this truth because it doesn't want to live by the word that God has given us, but instead it wants to live by the word and identity it creates for itself. It wants, in other words, to be the creator as well as the creature. But let's be honest with ourselves. Who are we kidding? We in the church 
are tempted to stray from God's word too. We too often idolize ourselves and what the world offers because we struggle with the very same thing that people in the world have, a sinful nature. We would rather be our own gods with the power to speak our own word and create our own values. We too want wealth, success, fame, the liberty to live as we please, apart from God and apart from his word. Without the supernatural grace of God giving us new birth and protecting us from further sin and temptation, we too would still be of the world and thus sons and daughters of destruction destined to face the full wrath of God for our sins. But let's not end there, because there is something better. There is good news. Let us rejoice together that even though Judas, the son of destruction, is lost, Jesus loses neither the rest of his disciples nor any of the other people he has chosen. We know, rather, that he has chosen some people to be saved, that he sets them apart from the world of destruction and brings them into his light, and he keeps them there forever. This is my second point, set apart in Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and look at verses 13 through 17 again. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. These verses show Jesus' confidence that the disciples are not of the world, just as Christ himself is not of the world. And Jesus is confident of this because he has given his disciples the word from the Father. Now, I know we've talked about this in a previous sermon, but by way of reminder, let me go ahead and say that when we see the term word, we're probably thinking about everything that Jesus had said throughout the gospel up to this point. And that's not entirely inaccurate, but let's also consider what it is that Jesus speaks about, and particularly what he speaks about most often. What does he speak about most often in the Gospel of John? He speaks about the nature of God, who he is and what he has done. So the, and not even just God in the abstract, that is, any God, period, but God in three persons, the Father, himself as the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the word in John is not just the commandments of Jesus, but it is primarily about the revelation of God. And most importantly, we should not forget the prologue to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
the ultimate word in John is not an abstract thing, but it is about the person and work of Jesus. And that explains the many I am statements we see throughout the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am. And so the word in John is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, that he is the I am who existed from the beginning, who appeared to Moses, and that through him alone we have eternal life. This is important to keep in mind, especially as we look at the request Jesus makes in verse 17. Let me go ahead and read that verse again. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, the word sanctify might seem a little confusing to us. At least for us Christians, we usually think of it as the moral improvement that the Holy Spirit gives to us to conform us to the image of Christ. And that is certainly the case in a lot of passages of Scripture, but I don't think that's what it means here. I think, rather, what it means is setting something apart, separating it from other things for a specific purpose. And now some of you in here who aren't Christians at all are probably thinking, this term sanctify, it doesn't make any sense. I have no referent for it. Well, let me go ahead and offer an analogy. This suit that I'm wearing, I don't really wear it very often. In fact, I don't really like suits very much. If it were up to me, I would honestly just wear jeans and a t-shirt every day, everywhere. But I have it because I know that I need it for special occasions. And so I set it apart. I put it in a bag. I put it on a special hanger. I put it in my closet so that when I encounter situations like this, I have it ready to go. And I could wear this suit every day if I wanted to, but then I'd probably treat it just like my other clothes. I'd probably put it on a regular hanger or drop it on the floor, (laughs) which I sometimes do with my clothes. Hashtag bachelor life. Hashtag God help me. (laughs) My room really needs sanctification, people. It's bad. (laughs) Um, But... Anyway, so I set my suit apart for a special purpose. That's kind of what sanctification is like, at least as it's used in this verse. And we see God doing this throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. So in the Old Testament, it was said that Aaron and his sons were sanctified for the priesthood. And likewise, we see that Jeremiah is said to be sanctified in order to be a prophet. And that's what it means to be sanctified, at least as is used in this verse, to be set apart for a specific task. And this term helped to explain why the disciples are said to be no longer of the world. Out of all of the people in the world, they were chosen to be Jesus' disciples and to have a relationship with him. And so for us to be sanctified in truth, 
is for us to be set apart from the world in order to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And this is a relationship that the world doesn't have naturally, but we have through the grace of God alone in Christ alone. Notice that I said the term relationship. We're not set apart by truth in the sense of mere head knowledge, something that we know in our minds. So if the word in John refers to the person and work of Jesus, so too does truth. And this truth gives us not just head knowledge, but it leads us to eternal life with God. The truth sets you free. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. If this was just head knowledge, why would Jesus ever come into the world to meet people face-to-face in the flesh? That would seem to be an odd thing to do. Why wouldn't just a message come out of heaven? And he comes to meet us in the flesh because he doesn't want us to know only facts about him. He wants us to know him and him as a person, and through Jesus to also know the Father as a person. There is one barrier, however, that prevents us from having that relationship, and that is our sin. If we do not have our sin problem dealt with, we all would be sons and daughters of destruction, destined to face the condemnation of God. But thankfully, praise God, that there is good news, that Jesus does more than just meet us face to face. Let's go ahead and look at verse 19 real quick. He says in that verse, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now the word consecrate in Greek is actually the same word as the term sanctify, So consecrate could also be translated as sanctify. So Jesus is saying, I'm sanctifying myself. But you may be wondering, well, what is he sanctifying himself for? Isn't he already perfectly holy and not of the world? Well, yes, so that's probably not what he means here. What he means, rather, is that he is setting himself apart for his death. His death on the cross. You see, we deserved, we deserved to remain of the world and to suffer destruction for our sins. But Jesus set himself apart in order to take that penalty for us in our place. So in the Old Testament, we see that priests were sanctified in order to be priests, and likewise, animals were also sanctified, set apart in order to be sacrifices to God. What Jesus is saying here is that he is both the priest and the sacrifice for our sins. He faces destruction on our behalf so that we could be set apart from destruction and instead have eternal life. Be encouraged, friends. This 
sacrifice is fully sufficient to cover all of your sins. Every single one. And that's why Hebrews 10.10 can say that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' death on the cross brings us once and for all out of the world destined for destruction and brings us into fellowship with the holy triune God. Nothing can separate us now from God, not even the evil one. Now the devil may still come after us on occasion and the world will certainly still hate us and think us weird. But Jesus prayed that the Father would protect his disciples from the devil, knowing that the Father would do that because of the sacrifice on the cross that covers all of their sins. And that same prayer applies to us too. We are protected from the devil because we have been sanctified by the same sacrifice of the word of God, Jesus Christ. Thus Jesus can say to us, take heart, I have overcome the world. And it is through faith that we participate in that victory. And we too become conquerors of the world. So we are no longer of the world And we are no longer bound by its word that it tells us. But we have been set apart from the world by the true word, Jesus Christ. But, as you can see, we are all still in the world. So, how do we live in the world while we are no longer of it? This brings me now to my third point, in the world. Let's go ahead and look at verses 18 through 19. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, it is true on the one hand that sanctification in verse 19 refers particularly to our salvation, our being set apart from the world through Jesus. But on the other hand, it's not like we're set apart only to do nothing and to let the world around us burn. We are set apart for a purpose. Just as I set apart my suit in my closet for a specific purpose, so too does God set us apart for his purposes. Just as the priests and prophets were sanctified, so too are we for a task. Just as Jesus set himself apart for his death, so too does his death set us apart from the world, and thus Jesus sends us out into the world in order to do that task. Now you may be wondering at this point, what is the task? Well, we are sanctified in truth, and we know that truth in John refers to the revelation of God in Jesus. So, Part of the task is to bear witness about Jesus, to go out into the world and proclaim who Jesus is and what he has done. We are also sanctified, and that this sanctification imitates 
to some extent, Jesus' own sanctification. Not perfectly, of course, but to some extent. And so another part of the task is to serve the world sacrificially as Christ served the world. Now, what do these things look like? At least as far as proclaiming the name of Christ goes, on the one hand, we should not avoid the reality of coming judgment. We should be honest with people and say that by nature we are headed for destruction and that we can't do anything on our own strength unless we have the grace of God to save us. But we do also have the gospel, which we can also proclaim. And when we proclaim that, it should exemplify the love and the joy that Christ showed us when he came into the world and died for our sins. If I'm perfectly honest with you, I'm really not very good at that myself. A while back, actually, some of us were hanging out in front of the church one evening before we were about to leave, and this guy on a bike shows up right in front of us and starts, well, as he described it, he started preaching his atheism to us. And some of us tried arguing and reasoning with him, like defending our point of view, but it seemed pretty clear to us after a while that he was pretty content in his ways, and as he said, he wanted to continue waging his war against Christianity. I decided to leave after that, but before I left, I noticed that I was getting increasingly frustrated, and I lost it. I let him have it, and I yelled at him very loudly. You could probably hear it from a block away. What I did was horrible. And in that moment, I had distrusted in the power of the gospel and in the power of the Spirit to save people. I trusted in my reason and my strength, and frankly, also in my anger. It's terrifying. And when we do stuff like that, we really should be asking ourselves the question, should we hate the world with the kind of hatred that the world hates us with? And the answer to that question should be no, never. And the reason why is because the world does not need more of the same, but it needs something radically not of this world. And it needs Jesus Christ, the holy God, the perfectly righteous man, and the sanctified sacrificial lamb. And if we preach that Christ in love and in joy, and if we seek to live in accordance with our sanctification, then we may well see people who don't know God come to know him through the power of the Spirit. But if that doesn't happen, then what excuse can the world give to us to reject the message other than that it hates Jesus and loves its own sin too much? Let's not set unnecessary barriers in the way of people to get to the gospel. And if they should hate us for anything, let it be that. And this is where I think sacrificial service can help us disarm our opponents. Now, by sacrificial service, I don't mean we should go ahead and die on a cross. I mean only Jesus could die for our sins. 
But what I mean, rather, is that we should be giving of our energy and resources to help other people, whether they're Christians or not. So the world might call us Islamophobic, as Bernie Sanders did. Okay, well, let's instead reach out to our Muslim neighbors. Let's go ahead and have conversations with them, even if we fear doing so. Or let's instead train missionaries to go out to radically Islamic nations and proclaim the gospel, knowing full well that they could be killed for doing so. Or maybe the world will say that we hate the poor. Okay, let's instead help feed and clothe the poor and help them to reintegrate into society as best as we can with the resources we have. That's what the ladle ministry is trying to do every Sunday afternoon and every Wednesday evening. And some other days I probably don't know about. It's doing things like that that helps show our love for people and helps break down the barriers preventing people from coming to the gospel and seeing it for what it really is, something not of this world. Now, let's say that we do all of these things, yet we still find the world increasing in its hatred to the point where we face state-sanctioned persecution with the state taking some of our rights away. Well, what in the world do we do then? That might seem discouraging to us, and certainly to me as well. We're not used to it. But Jesus prayed for the disciples' protection, and not from suffering, but from the evil one, the devil. And it's in times of suffering that we may be especially tempted to leave God and to go back to the world and the things and enticements that it offers us. We do, however, have a few resources to help us fight that temptation. And this passage gives us some of those resources. There are three that I have in mind. First, we have the unity of the church, which Jesus prayed for in verse 11. May they be one just as we are one. Jesus knew how powerful the corrupting influence of the world is. We're surrounded by its messages, by its word to us every day. We can't face it on our own. We're probably taking in messages without even realizing that we are. We need each other. We need each other to remind us when the world is lying to us and also to bring us back, point us back to the fellowship we have with God through Jesus. And we should be encouraged by the fact that we have that fellowship with God and that that fellowship is similar to what the Father and Son themselves shared with each other. Secondly, we share the joy that Jesus himself had, according to verse 13. And this joy comes not just by knowing facts about God, but by knowing God and by communing with him through the means that he has given us to commune with him. And these means are the written word, the preached word, the sacraments of baptism and communion, and prayer. The world would like to steal our joy as much as it can. 
But if we remain in fellowship with God, the world can't take all of our joy away. Thirdly and finally, we have ongoing sanctification in the word. Now, in verse 17, I had argued that to sanctify in that verse meant to be set apart and that this happened once and for all in the death of Christ. And that's true. But it is also true that we still struggle with sin and disbelief that's still in our hearts. And so we need ongoing sanctification as well as that once and for all sanctification. We need to hear the gospel, the word of God, every day. And we need to be reminded of Christ's death and resurrection for us if we are to keep our unity and our joy. So, in conclusion, let me go ahead and say this. If you are not a Christian and you're here today, then you should know what we proclaim. We proclaim that humans by nature are sons and daughters of destruction, that humans are destined to face the wrath of God if we don't turn from our sins and turn instead to Jesus Christ, who is alone our salvation. But if you are a Christian, if you believe in the sacrifice of Christ and in his perfect life, then be encouraged by these things. You have been set apart once and for all, away from the world of destruction, and have been set apart for Christ and for the Father and his purposes. And with the Father's protection over you, you may be assured that not one of you who believes in Christ will be lost. The Father and the Spirit will bring you through any temptation, any trial, any persecution. And they will one day bring you face to face with the truth who set you free. And so, it is because we are no longer of the world, but have been set apart in Jesus Christ, that we may go out into the world and bear witness about Jesus and to serve the world sacrificially. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you again for the gift of your word, which we don't deserve. We thank you that you sent your son, the true word of God, to live the perfect life and to die for our sins so that we could be set apart from destruction and set apart for salvation and for lifelong obedience and fellowship with you. Father God, it is not by our own strength that we do this, but it is by the power of your Spirit within us. And we pray that you would continue to strengthen us, continue to enable us to go out into the world with confidence and know that even if it hates us and mocks us, we have the Word of God. We have salvation and we have your strength. And that because of that, we don't have to be angry, bitter, sorrowful about what the world does, but we can take confidence in what you have done for us. May we then serve the world with love and with joy, and joy especially in Christ and the good news. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.